1: From MPV Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And you're listening to Southern Remedy, All Things Considered. That's right, we're live and we're waiting for you to call about any topic of your interest. And I have a special guest you'll also want to hear who uh, is an expert in sports medicine and emergency medicine and what have you So give us a call at 1 1877 MPB ring one 18776727464. Or send us an email. We're picking them up at Southern Remedy to mpbonline.org. We're going to be right back after the news to co- take your call. Give us a call. Our lines are open at 1 877 672 7464. We'll be right
2: back. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Noor Rahm. Now that Republican leaders have drafted a health care bill that would replace the Affordable Care Act, NPR's Scott Detrow reports their next step is to convince GOP lawmakers to vote for it.
0: The Tea Party wing of the GOP is raising concerns about the bill, saying it leaves too much of Obamacare in place. But House Speaker Paul Ryan says he guarantees there will be enough Republican votes to pass it in the House. Republicans have set an
2: ambitious goal. They want this passed and signed within the next two months. NPR's Scott Detrow. A coalition of activist and women's rights groups is encouraging women to take part in a one-day demonstration of economic solidarity today, a strike called A Day Without a Woman. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports the goal is to highlight the economic power of women and their continuing challenges in the workplace.
3: Organizers hope to raise awareness about a range of issues, including the need for adequate paid family leave, equal pay for women, and better efforts to combat discrimination and harassment. Women are encouraged to take the day off from paid and unpaid labor today and not to shop, except at women in minority-owned and small businesses. Ai-jen Poo is director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which has endorsed the strike.
0: It's about valuing and recognizing women's work, especially the least visible and to defend against some of the assaults that are happening on particular groups of women, like immigrant women, Muslim women, transgender women.
3: Organizers are asking women and men to wear red in solidarity with the strike's goals. Eric Westervelt, NPR News.
2: The defense ministry in Afghanistan says more than 30 people are dead and dozens more were wounded following an attack on a military hospital in Kabul. Gunmen fought security forces for hours and a suicide bomber blew himself up. BBC reporter Jill McGivering has more. This is being described as a complex and well-planned attack. Three armed men entered the hospital compound after a fourth set off a bomb at one of the main gates. One eyewitness said he saw a gunman dressed in a white coat, disguised as a doctor, shooting hospital staff. Afghan security forces mounted a ground and air operation, but it took several hours to end the siege. This is a high-security area of the capital, and there will be questions about how the men managed to enter this big military hospital and how far this attack suggests a change in tactics by the Islamic State Group. BBC reporter Jill McGivering reporting. Investigators in Biloxi, Mississippi, are trying to determine why a freight train crashed into a tour bus yesterday. Four people were killed and dozens were injured, some critically. Witnesses told Mississippi news outlets it appears that the bus was stuck on the tracks when it was hit. The bus originated in Austin, Texas, and was carrying tourists to a Gulf Coast casino. On Wall Street this hour, the market is mixed. The NASDAQ is up 11 points, but the Dow is down 17. This is NPR News. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights is calling on Iran to stop executing children. The execution of juveniles is prohibited under international law, but it's still practiced by Iran. Commissioner Zaidrod al-Sussein said there are at least 80 juveniles now on death row in Iran. With tensions rising on the Korean Peninsula, the Chinese government has a proposal for calming things down. Beijing is proposing that North Korea suspend testing of its missiles and nuclear weapons, and the U.S. and South Korea, in exchange, stop their joint military exercises. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has more from Beijing.
4: Foreign Minister Wang Yi suggested the deal at a press briefing at the annual session of China's legislature. He likened the U.S. and North Korea to two trains heading straight for each other on the same track. Are the two sides really prepared for a head-on collision, he asked. We need to turn the lights red, he added, and both sides need to hit the brakes simultaneously. China would prefer to resume negotiations it previously hosted on the nuclear issue, but North Korea walked out of those in 2009 and swore not to return. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Beijing.
2: Crews continue to battle wildfires in four states, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and Colorado. Officials in Kansas say that more than 1,000 square miles have burned One person died after his tractor trailer jackknifed. In the Texas panhandle, at least four people died in wildfires, including three ranch hands trying to save their cattle. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington.
5: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include C3IOT. Providing a software platform that brings machine learning, big data, and cloud computing to industrial-scale predictive analytics and IoT solutions. Learn more at C3IoT.com.
6: You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1 877 672 7464. You can always email your comments and questions to Southern Remedy at MPBOnline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: Hello, everybody. It's always our pleasure to visit with you for this hour. On Wednesdays on public broadcasting in Mississippi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at UMC, and I have brought a special guest today who is, like me, comfortable taking questions about just about anything you want to ask. My good friend, Dr. Brian Tollipson, who is both an emergency medicine specialist and and a sports medicine specialist, and boy, you're busy with the sports medicine part, I bet, right now. Absolutely, yeah. So we we want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. We're alone and lonely up here. If you don't call, we'll talk about stuff that you probably don't want to hear about. So give us a call if you have any particular medical questions or whatever uh, is on your mind. We're one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I'm going to slow down saying that one. Or you can send us an email at at org. We are all yours. Whatever you want to talk about, let's do it. Hey, concussions keep coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up. And let me tell you where I am on that, which is behind you by a long shot, Dr. Thompson. Um, Now there are some kind of regulations that have been sent out to coaches everywhere about – under what circumstances a kid uh, is likely had a concussion, and what you can, whether or not that kid can re-enter or has to set out, set out, sit out of sports, is that true
3: or false? Uh, that's true. Um, you know, obviously, concussions has has gotten a lot of press in the recent years, especially with the NFL. All these players that are that are getting this traumatic brain injury from repeated concussions. So now all 50 states have laws on the books that mandate how we deal with concussions. Mississippi was actually one of the last, if not the last, state to implement that law. But it applies to kids at the high school level. Um, And basically what it mandates is that the coaches, players, parents all have education on signs and symptoms of concussion, how concussions are treated. And then each of the players that that have a sports concussion have to see a doctor to be cleared to return to play. Mm -hmm. And they also have to follow a return to play protocol that kind of grades their exertion over a period of days to get them back to to kind of plain shape. That's Dr. Brian Toffson
1: talking. He's our emergency medicine specialist and also a sports medicine specialist here with me taking your questions at one 877 672-7464, 672 that's one eight seven seven 877 ring, or you can send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Well, what about all those kids that aren't in high school that are out banging their heads around uh, playing baseball, fast-pitch softball, football when they're five years old? Well, what about them? Who's looking after them?
3: Yeah, the the law unfortunately doesn't apply to you know sports that are outside of that high school arena, um, but we still treat them the same way. We apply the same rules to them, and especially the younger kids actually are at more risk of having having brain damage if they go back in before the concussion is has healed. So we take a lot of special care with with the younger kids when it comes to sports concussions.
1: So where can people go online? parents in particular that are not getting the required education that the parents are supposed to be getting for high schoolers and learn what a concussion is and if somebody calls us at one eight seven seven mpb we'll tell you what a concussion is and what it's like and what to do about it but what what uh where is is that
3: at the American Academy of Sports Medicine website or where is it uh, there's actually a lot of different places that have really good information on concussions. Heads Up is, is one that's commonly used. Heads Up. Yeah, Heads Up. And I think it's heads com? I think it's Heads Up dot com. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and they have, if you just do a Google search for Heads Up concussion, it'll bring you to that website. And that has in it all the education that the the parents and athletes and coaches need. And even the physicians it has a tract in there for physicians to go through
1: we want to talk about concussions if you want to talk about them we're at one eight seven seven mpB ring how do you know uh, when to take a kid to the emergency room or an adult um, when they've had a sports injury
3: <clears throat> that that can be difficult um, you know even fairly minor uh, seeming injuries can turn out to be something more serious so you definitely want to have them looked at by someone with medical training and the good thing in Mississippi, a lot of the the high schools, especially the bigger ones, have athletic trainers. And they're very good at looking at these sports-related injuries and knowing who needs uh, uh, follow-up. And they, and they have usually contact with a sports physician that they, they work closely with.
1: Now, I understand that you've uh, been playing a pretty significant role in trying to figure out who needs x-rays and who needs other things? One of the things that you've, you're using now is ultrasound on joints, which keep little kids from having to have x-rays sometimes. I know that's a developing technology, but what is it?
3: Yeah, we have a lot of clinical rules to kind of help us guide who needs an x-ray, who doesn't. Um, one of the things we commonly see, especially you know in the pediatric ER, are people that are coming in with ankle sprains. And trying to decide if they need an X-ray or if it's just something we can treat as a sprain and avoid that that radiation, the clinical rules help us out a lot with that. But ultrasound kind of helps us as well. The people that kind of fall out of that clinical rule that tells us they need an X-ray, we can look at them with ultrasound and sometimes still avoid the X-ray by seeing normal bones and, and with the so ultrasound. So you're
1: trying to you're trying to actually to keep X-ray exposure down in your patients across the board uh, in one technique of uh, these guidelines you use, because people get mad. They come to the emergency room expecting to get an x-ray, and you tell them they don't meet criteria, and they think it's the government keeping you from getting an x It's It's usually the
3: data. Is that right? That, that's exactly right, and we get that a lot, especially with these minor head injuries that, that kids will fall, bump their head the parents will bring the child in and want a CT scan. And that's the worst thing you can do if they don't need well, it. Well,
1: we're going to go to Gulfport and Permont and Madison in your house. At, if you'll give us a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six. 877 Before we do that, will you tell our listeners how those guidelines are developed and uh, the fact that these complex statistical methods uh, are actually better than the average doctor's brains in, in, in helping you look at an uh, individual patient? Yeah, or yeah. maybe you disagree.
3: No, I, I think in the right hands, and you still have to use it in the clinical context, but if, if you have someone, say, with an ankle sprain or knee injury, there's these things called the Ottawa ankle and foot rules or Ottawa knee rules. That were developed by doing studies on thousands and thousands of patients and have been validated multiple times. So they're really good decision rules to help us guide who needs an x-ray. So what do you have those on? You have them for head CTs. You have them for
1: ankles. What other joints do you have them for?
3: The ankle foot, we have knee rules, C-spine rules. C-spine rules we use probably the most commonly, especially in the ER after some of these minor MVCs, to avoid Motor vehicle
1: collisions. Correct. To avoid
3: having to get imaging on the C-spine. See, I didn't know that you had them on C-spines. Cervical
1: spine is your neck. And so sometimes you've been in a rear ender, which is when you really get your neck jerked out of whack, and you won't get an X-ray.
3: Right. And nowadays, we don't typically do x-rays. If we feel we need to image the C-spine, we'll do a CT scan. The x-ray just isn't sensitive enough to pick up a lot of those injuries that, that we're we're finding. So
1: if you really think something's going on, you, you go for a home run rather than first base. That's right. Very good. Let's go to Gulfport and Kelton. Hey, Kelton. Kelton, you're on the air. Hey, Hi, guys. So I got a question for
4: you. So. A uh, shortstop for Richardson, um Friday night, uh, uh softball girls team. She takes, she walks into the batting cage, gets hit in the eye, uh, not not aware that they were pitching the ball, and then she gets looked at, and the coach wants her to play 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 that night. You know, she's got a big swollen eye, and I mean, now today she's, they're seeing a she's got to be a force general before CAT scan because uh, they believe that they got a sinus sinus pass. The pass is broken. But Monday night, it had to be another trainer that wouldn't let her enter the game um, because the coach still wanted her to play. Um, And then who's responsible for the CAT
1: scan? Is it the parent?
4: Or is it the school? Is it the state? I mean, when it comes to these injuries?
1: Boy, have you got uh, some good, good questions. And why don't we just touch on them real quickly because we could spend the entire program on those. Number one, who 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 is really responsible for making the call of whether that child needs to reenter or not? Is it the coach? Is it the trainer? Is it mama? Uh, does mama have
3: an, or daddy? D- can daddy override the coach? I've seen that go. Uh, what's the deal? When I'm working these games, especially you know for the younger kids and, and high school kids, we don't do anything without the parent's permission. So if they get injured, the first thing I'm doing is, is telling someone to go get the parent. Yeah, and, but and most people aren't
1: as lucky to have you. I know. You have you. If my kids were playing, I'd want you there
3: of anybody. Most people don't have you there. They don't have a doctor. Right. And and hopefully they have a trainer. And trainers, um, most of them that I've worked with are really good, and they can function. What pretty- are they? Do they have a certificate? yeah they're yeah. licensed they're what? certified athletic trainers and they go they have a four-year degree that they go through some do a master's degree in it and they have pretty extensive training in, in musculoskeletal injuries and most of them work you know uh closely with a sports medicine doctor so
1: his question is his kid gets hit in the eye with a ball the coach wants to put him in he is concerned and it's the trainer that has the
3: the power to override the coach is that correct not necessarily. What? I, I would say the trainer is, is there to give advice. Um most of the and I have not seen uh, too often where the coach will say no, nah, you know, thanks for your advice, but I'm I'm still going to play. Well, the, okay. The so
1: the the trainer says uh, is the parent allowed to go on the field while this conversation takes place?
3: No. I mean, occasionally you'll see that happening, but we try to kind of keep them off the field and talk to them after we've evaluated the player. So uh, if there's a disagreement between the trainer and the parent, uh, does the,
1: the uh, trainer and the coach, does the parent have to be notified?
3: Uh I don't know if it's a requirement because sometimes the parents aren't there. Well, that's what he's worried about. You a know? lot of times what we see, believe it or not, is the parent wants the, the kid to keep playing. You know, they're in this competitive <laughs> league, and we're telling him, no, I don't think he should play. And the parent's like, no, he's fine. Get him out there. And uh, Okay, so just straighten
1: this out because I really confused it for Kelton. Who yeah. is in control?
3: If if there's a physician there, I would say the physician is can, in control, and it depends on the relationship with the athletic trainer. Um, you know, if it's a part-time job for them, I still think that the coach is is going to listen to the trainer. Okay,
1: does a parent have the option to come out of the stands and say, look, uh, I really respect you, coach, but I'm really worried about this. I want to I want to take her out. I'm probably going to take her to the emergency room.
3: A- absolutely. The, the parent has the final say of whether they, All they right. go All right, so back, who pays
1: you know, for it when they go to the emergency room?
3: And, and that's usually the uh the player's insurance cuz you have to have insurance to play sports um so it'll it'll usually go on the on the player's okay, insurance okay kelton we got other callers did you get what you needed you
1: gave me everything i needed you're the man thank you. thank you for your call yes sir you're listening to Southern Remy on MPB Think Radio it's all things considered and we're talking sports medicine emergency medicine or any kind of medicine you want to talk about and we just lost a couple of callers so uh, if you'll call back, uh, we have now electrocuted our producer and replaced him with a machine. Uh, so I think we have one call. Is that right? One call, that's all. Uh, yeah. So let's go to Richard in Alabama. Hey, Richard. Morning, doctor. How are you doing today? Thank you. You're the surviving caller from our program. <laughs> uh, the rest uh, of them have somewhere vanished into Mobile Bay. Where in Alabama are you? I'm in Saraland, which is North Mobile County. Right. That's an interesting place. A lot of people drill for oil out there, don't they? Oh, uh, they do. Uh-huh. Yeah, amazing. What's your question? Uh, I called you a year or so ago about a, a medical about a uh,
4: situation I've had since May 2012: intractable hiccups. Yes. And I had a, a procedure performed uh, back in October of uh, 2015 involving placing a Teflon pledget in the occipital area of my brain between the vagus nerve and an artery. And that's supposed to uh, reduce the hiccups. It's it's helped some. Mm -hmm. But he used the Pledgett system rather than the Teflon wrap. And I was going to ask you doctors if there's anything... Uh, any other procedure could be used to stop these I've lost about twenty pounds in body weight because
1: of this. i'm so sorry i'm so uh, sorry you have uh you know you have sort of the worst case scenario where you end up going to see a neurosurgeon which is way down the pike uh from where we usually come in. We usually come in with an acuter or acute on chronic situation and uh try tricks. You have a whole bunch of emergency room tricks since and this is not going to help our caller but since he brought it up and before we get to his question what are the tricks that people can use on their own or are they come to the emergency room for to stop hiccups and what are you concerned about when somebody gets hiccups that are intractable
3: yeah it's one of those uh i guess symptoms that have a really broad differential some can be really benign some can be very serious um you know, the home remedies that people try, you know, I think they probably work as good as anything else. So definitely try those first. Drinking water. You know, I guess the startle can sometimes do it. Honey. Honey. Yeah, things like that. Whiskey. <laughs> I don't recommend that. <laughs> in the Real. in the ER will, you know, sometimes use medications like thorazine, um, things like that. But like you said, if it's something that's continuing on and and We're not able to resolve it uh, fairly quickly. You definitely need more specialty involvement. Why do you hiccup?
1: What's the mechanism?
3: You know, I I think most of the time it's either a stimulation of that vagus nerve um, that stimulates the diaphragm. Um, And like I said, there's there's a a
1: long electrical line between your brain and your diaphragm. And anything in between there could get goofed up, right? Right. That's exactly right. So you could have a tumor. You could have, which is unusual. You could have some kind of electrical problem, and so forth. But most people, it's nothing.
3: Right. Most of yeah. it's a really benign cause, and it goes yeah. away, and they don't worry about it.
1: I don't know of anything new. We'll Google this for you, Richard. Uh, Google this uh, and see if we can find anything. And if we find anything, you're you're way down the pike. I'm awfully sorry uh, that this hasn't worked. But the most important thing you can do, and this is what I say to anybody that has had an incomplete response from a physician is to go back to that neurosurgeon or neurologist who recommended this procedure. And by now, they've probably had enough of them that they know what to do next, either medically. It may be that a certain medicine will help now that it's the threshold has been lowered. So I would recommend you go back and we'll look this up and we appreciate your call. Let's I'm go sure. to, yes, we very much appreciate that call. God bless. Let's go to Columbus and Jay. Hey, Jay. What's happening?
0: Hello. Hey, Jay. Oh, hey. Uh, My question is, I I went to the doctor not long ago with a ganglion cyst on my hand, Mm -hmm. and uh, I kind of knew what it was, but I didn't know what to do about it or anything. and And he looks at it and he says he's in there about five minutes and says there's nothing to do with that unless you know it starts really bothering you.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, And it cost me a hundred and something dollars to get out of there. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is there a place that you can go to just Look, somebody look at your
1: hand and say, "You know, I, I would." The I- answer is no. You're going to get charged uh, something, no matter who you go to. and well, I don't mind paying. Well, nothing. let me let me finish. Let me finish. <laughs> and what you have to learn, and unfortunately you learn the hard way, is to ask up front. Would you have some guy come out and replace your entire heating system and not get an estimate or what it's going to cost? Uh you will find that the cost is lower if you ask up front what it's going to be. So how much would it be for a visit with this doctor? Uh and and the way that these are charged is on the basis of the complexity of the problem and how long the doctor spends. So we have all these different billing codes, one, two, three, five million. And we can bill you at whatever uh, charge we think is appropriate. We have a bunch of communists watching us uh, to make sure we do it legally. But uh, we have a lot of options. And so from now on, when you go in to have a service, call the office and get an estimate. And if they won't give you one, you want to find another doctor. How's that? All right. I
0: appreciate
1: it. All right. And I'm sorry you're $100 in the hole. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Thanks. You're listening to Southern Remedy. We're at one eight seven seven MPB Ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I'm Doctor Rick uh, here with an expert emergency medicine and sports medicine doctor, Doctor Brian, and we're going to get some rebuttal from the Delta. We're going to see AJ. Oh, by the way, all our lines are open. We're one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. If you want to get your question answered, now is the time. Hey AJ, what's happening?
4: Hi there. Good morning. Doc.
1: We appreciate your the, call. Okay. Well,
4: I'm glad to talk to you guys. Uh, as you all were debating a moment ago about responsibility and who may or may not have final say so and how things are done when there's a sports injury in in. During, during competition, um, I, I had the good fortune to serve as a high school basketball and football official. Uh-huh. And officials are, go through a protocol, and, and we go through training about concussions. We're made very aware of a responsibility that we have during the course of the ball game. And we cannot, uh, we have the authority to override that coach or parent and not let a child participate until there is a medical release from a uh, satisfactory medical personnel, be it a doctor or a physical trainer or whomever is there. But if there's no...
1: We just lost you. You still there, A.J.? A.J., there's something going on with your phone or our phone or both phones, uh, and uh, we heard all of your uh, call uh, except for the last second. So here's what AJ and I, I wish he'd call back. AJ told us was that the 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 officials are are the ones are one of the ones that have uh, the authority to override the coach or the parent.
3: And with concussions, I would say that's definitely true. And really any injury the officials are are in charge of the game, but I would say for the most part they don't necessarily get involved with the the more minor injuries on, you know, whether they can play or not. They they definitely, you know, look at people that are coming out with casts on their arms, things like that, to make sure they're safe to play, you know, for other players. They're not going to use it as a weapon out there. But uh, with concussions, that's kind of a different thing, that, yeah, we want to be very careful with concussions. And if, if an official thinks a player had a concussion, even if it's, you know, not recognized by the medical staff or the coaches, they're, they're going to take them out of the game. Okay. So what you're saying is,
1: I think if an official wanted to take a kid out of a game because he had a scratch he could do that I, no matter what it what it is but they frequently don't exercise that for minor stuff is that what you're saying right. but they, it's, they have the option
3: yeah i mean they they have the option to do a lot of different things with the game obviously um you know they can call the game if it's getting too rough or, or the players aren't uh, following the rules and directions of the game. So yeah, they, they would, I guess, you know, have a lot of authority in that as well.
1: Okay, we're going to go to Jim and Madison, and then we're going to take a break. Well, we'll take your call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. I hate breaks. One eight seven seven MPB ring. Let's go to Jim and Madison. Jim, what you got to say? Good
7: morning. I'm I'm an old guy that played football in high school more than 50 years ago and i had two i guess what would be considered major concussions i was knocked unconscious at least twice that i remember hmm. is there anything i need to be concerned about now at age 71 for something that happened to me when i was 16
1: by the way uh 71 is the new 45 <laughs> go, <laughs> for
3: it, go for it baby go for it baby so what's uh, what's the answer to that one I would say the answer to that is uh, there's nothing you can do to change the course of concussions at this point um, that I'm aware of. And, you know, if you've gone this long and haven't had chronic symptoms, you know, bad headaches, memory loss, things like that, you're probably, uh, you know, safe. Well, now, what he's asking you is he knows the biggest
1: problem that has been identified in adults is dementia. Right. And uh, unfortunately, you and I know that if you live long enough, you're going to get dementia mm-hmm. anyway. Exactly. Uh, but just because it's uh, there's something wrong with our diet or something that is making this epidemic of dementia. For, well, for one thing, people didn't live this long before, and we're having huge numbers of people now live in their 90s and 100s. So uh, if you're not having any symptoms of dementia, forgetfulness, your wife or significant other or kids telling you you can't remember anything,
3: then you probably don't have a problem. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I would agree with that. I mean, there's tons of people that have had concussions multiple times that really don't have any lasting sequelae. But one thing I'd kind of like to point out, you know, he talked about having severe concussions with loss of consciousness. We don't really grade concussions anymore because even these minor ones where they're just having a little headache and dizziness can turn into uh, a severe problem later on. So really? we really tend not to grade them. Huh. I didn't know that, Jim. Did you get your
1: question answered or your comment? Uh,
7: I certainly did, and my main concern was, uh, as you brought up dementia, because I have a family history on my dad's side mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's. Right. And, um, you know, I'm at seventy-one. Thank thank goodness, I'm too old to be the victim of any kind of early onset. Anything.
1: Right. I understand well,
7: the good news, but uh, but that that was the reason for my concern. Well,
1: here's here's one one thing you didn't ask uh, for. Uh, there's some data to suggest that if you eat a handful of peanuts once a day, it delays the onset of dementia. Of course, uh, you may have to take gas X. <laughs> but well,
7: uh, I'm on my way to the grocery, and I will
1: visit the all right aisle. Well, Jim, we appreciate your call. Thank you so much. We're going to be right back to go to Frank and George and your house if you give us a call at 18776727464 we have a great guest today who's an expert on just about everything including sports medicine and emergency medicine and of course you got old Dr. Rick who'll talk about anything so give us a call we'll be right back after this quickie
5: Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio.
4: The Home Show is back at the Mississippi Trademark this weekend, March 10th through the 12th, and the hosts of the Handyman Hangout, Fixing 101, will be there taking care of business. Come hang out with Jeff, Dale, and Jason and see what's new in DIY and home renovations. That's the Home Show this weekend at the Trademark, and be sure to listen to Fixing 101 every Wednesday, 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. (laughs)
5: To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org.
6: You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick. here with Dr. Brian, and we're all yours. Whatever you want to ask, we're going to do our very best to give you that information, and I appreciate the call during the break from the sweet lady who said uh, I'm her favorite doctor. I did not appreciate the comment that I'm your only doctor (laughs) because I can't reach through this microphone to feel uh, around on you and listen, so I hope you find somebody else too, but I appreciate that sweet comment, and I love you for it listen let's go to uh let's go to george who's been patiently waiting hey george george it's your time george are you there? yeah you're there you're on right now like a baby kangaroo joey oh it's joey oh yeah. sorry well we're we're not we're not saying we're <laughs> literate here no, i can't hear royally now what's going uh, on
4: this coming November be seventeen years, and and January following be seventeen years that I've had both hips replaced. Yes, sir. And the surgeon said that seventeen years by the as longest as he'd ever seen them. Right, well, and I'm not having much more problem than I ever have with them except when the weather turns. Yep two questions. How is the lifespan? Was his estimate correct? And the next question, when I do have to have them redunk, can they do the fairly new procedure where they split the top of your thigh instead of leaving purple parentheses on your heel?
1: <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'll give a little bit, and I don't know whether Dr. Brian wants to comment, too. Uh, yes, that's well, a long I, I'll time... L-
4: I'll listen to you offline.
1: All right. We appreciate your call. Um, I, uh, you're right. The original hip uh, replacement uh mechanism uh did not last as long as the newer ones, and to have one in place that long is really terrific uh The one thing that does seem to make a big difference in how long they last is whether or not you keep fit in the muscles that control the movement of your legs, the quadriceps muscles and the other. Uh, muscles. So one of the problems that we have with people who get hips is they feel so wonderful, uh, they start moving, but they also start eating and don't exercise enough to keep those, uh, those um, implants in place. Uh, whether or not you will, uh, you, let's hope that you, you outlive uh, your implant and that uh, you do have to have it replaced at 100, but you may never have to have it replaced. So as long as you're not having any trouble with it, uh, go to church every Sunday and thank the Lord that it's working. And if you do need a replacement, it depends on what surgically was done with your particular brand of hip. So I can't answer the question if you can have some of the newer techniques which are a little bit less invasive than the old ones um and so that would be determined by x-rays and so forth is that right dr brian
3: yeah and just to kind of reiterate i'm sure you refer a lot of patients for hip replacement as well and what i'll usually tell them is wait as long as you can if your symptoms are fairly mild or you know usually it's for arthritis that we get hip replacements um, try to go as long as you can on your native hips because they do tend to wear out, um, especially if you're young and active when you get them. Uh, so I usually tell people, you know, maybe 10 years, but the surgeon's going to give them more specific instructions on how to care for it. But, again, the big thing is just maintain a healthy body weight. So if you're putting a lot of extra weight on them, they're going to wear out a lot quicker. Absolutely. Weight is not good no matter what organ we're talking about. Let's
1: go to Frank in Jackson. Hey, Frank.
4: Hey, good morning. How you guys doing today? We're
1: doing good. We Great. appreciate your call.
4: Great. Two things. Two things now. The first thing is, Dr. Rick, you need to uh, clarify your statement about communists looking over your shoulder.
1: <laughs> All right. I'll work I on
4: don't that. Think you need to, to uh, talk bad about people who have to try to control some of these health care costs you got going on.
1: You got me. I'm, I'm okay. bleeding. I'm bleeding right here in my chair. I'll, I will retract that. That's number one. What's and number two?
4: Remember, Christ was a socialist communist. But anyway,
1: <laughs> okay.
4: To, uh, I listen to the health shows on MTV and I love them. They're great. They're informative. The uh, the, the people answering the questions are uh, considerate and they're kind. But I have a problem with a lot of the callers into the show because I have heard time and time again. Advice being given on on the air, and the callers reporting advice given to them by their doctors, and mainly associated with diet. When a doctor says, well, you might want to get a more plant-based diet and cut down on the meat and the dairy, these people have the temerity, tenacity, whatever the word is, to say, I can't give up my bacon. I can't. You know, and they've got high blood pressure, diabetes, heart problems, and two strokes, but they refuse to change their lifestyle. What can be done short of a communist manifesto to mandate it?
1: All right. Well, I obviously triggered a lot of uh, neurons in your brain when I use the term communist plot. So thank you for both of those questions. And you're right. I should honor those uh, bean counters that are constantly hitting me over the head with emails saying, uh, well, you didn't merit this particular level of charge, even though I spent an hour and a half with someone who had 50 problems. But uh, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong. So the second thing is getting people to make healthy choices. I don't have an answer to that. I've been practicing medicine for 40-something years, and I try to be warm, warm, accommodating, non-judgmental, loving, caring, respectful. When I tell someone who is drastically overweight that they would be a lot happier Um, if they would uh, stop eating a lot of fatty foods. And then I talk about what is a healthy diet. And I also talk about how you can substitute sugar substitutes and fat substitutes and how you can use yogurt and all this kind of stuff to make things taste just about as good. And I also tell them that after you're not on that fatty diet for about six months, you don't want fat anymore. It makes you sick at your stomach. But they never believe me. So maybe Dr. Bryan has a better plan.
3: No, I mean, it's it's one of those things that we deal with. You know, I deal with that uh, every day, and, and especially in my clinical practice, because a lot of the injuries or, or uh, ailments that I see in the sports medicine clinic are due to p- patients being overweight, especially the middle age, um, you know, sedentary or, or not uh, very athletic patients. They're carrying sometimes Two people on their back, and they're wondering why their knees constantly hurt. That so, is a
1: good, uh, good image. Yeah.
3: That's true too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's. Mm-hmm. I usually sit down with them and tell them that it's you know a matter of the calories you're taking in. You just have to take in less calories, and you're burning up, and you're going to lose the weight. I think
1: the bottom line is is that each person has to make a choice, and we are making choices now about this: is how long they want to live. Exactly. Because it's a whole different world out there. We can keep people alive forever, just about. And uh, at at some point, the quality of life gets so bad, it's not ethical to keep somebody alive. So we see a lot of morbidly obese people who come in uh, that, you know, that we could keep them alive, but they and their families are so miserable with their quality of life, they don't want to do that. And we're talking about seven years of life, life lost on average for morbid obesity. We're talking about seven years of life lost for smoking. Uh, you know, you add all those years of life lost, and, you know, we're seeing kids now who are morbidly obese that we know within 10 years are going to have diabetes. People are making some really bad decisions. And uh, since we're talking about sports medicine, one of the things that really bothers me, I'm going to nail you on this one, uh, doctor, is these kids who get fat to be linebackers and, uh, and play football better. What's your take on that? Are you seeing it? Because I see some mighty fat football players.
3: Yeah, and, and I don't know if I necessarily see people trying to gain weight for those positions. I think they fall into those positions because Blind of. Blind men, not yeah. why I was corrected. Correct. You, you can tell I, I don't know much about football. And, and they, yeah, they they want to keep the weight because it helps them at their position, and they're they are working out a fair amount, but they're still carrying around way too much fat. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, you know, this this epidemic that we're having of obesity. Not only do you lose, you know, time in your life, but the quality of life is is probably even a bigger thing. You know, people that are 30 years old and are 200 pounds overweight, their quality of life could be so much better if they lost the weight. Well, Frank,
1: I think we were talking to the choir, but thank you for your call and your correction. I'm not too old to be corrected, and I appreciate that. Let's go to uh, Lisa. Hey, Lisa, what's going on with your uh, child?
0: Okay, um, my grandson's 14 and, a half and his one season he broke his ankle real bad. Uh, ended up, clothes reduction didn't work, and he had to go in and actually do surgery with screws and everything. And then they said he was well enough to next season to go ahead and play again, and that's what he wanted to do, so he did. And then he got hit in that same leg, this time in the knee area, oh. and some small bone or some other bone behind the knee, was broken and he had to stay in a cast up to his thigh uh, for a long period of time and you know, I'm just wondering if he really needs to just sit out and he's also an asthmatic so he, he takes nebulizer treatments at home, you know, the Ventolin, the Proventolin and then he takes you know, has a rescue inhaler and another inhaler, so I'm wondering if some these steroids or something may be weakening his bones and if he needs to just really kind of sit out
1: I'm going to take that call first. I'm going to to take that call first because I want to hear what he says to my response. There is one competitive exercise sport that he can do that would help his asthma and his bones, and that is swimming. Swimming uh, is asthmatics do not wheeze when they swim. They do when they run and uh, it also will strengthen the muscles around the joints that he's got. He's probably got other injured joints, and you're right. It may be that steroids have weakened his joints, and you ought to uh, mention to his mom that uh, he may need a bone densitometry at an early age just to check on that. That's, That's my take. What's yours?
3: yeah and one of the uh, one of the things you see a lot in 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 kids growing up playing sports especially the contact sports is there's such a big discrepancy in the size of these kids nowadays mm-hmm. you know you'll you'll have some kids in jv that are 250 pounds playing against these <laughs> these kids that are you know 100 pounds yeah. so if you're if you're on the small end of that you're you're going to take uh the majority of the impact and, and you're going to get hurt so a lot of times it does come down to that. If you're just too small to play in the contact sport with the bigger kids, um, you're going to get hurt. And I agree, you know, swimming's a great sport. I've seen, though, a couple of kids that were competitive swimmers in high school that then transitioned in college to cross-country and, and both ended up with stress fractures in their Ugh. feet. Ugh. Yeah, so you, you got to be careful about ramping your exercise up if you're used to kind of that non-weight-bearing exercise. Well, maybe if you got two major
1: injuries... And playing whatever sport you're playing, there's a message there. Exactly. You know, maybe, yes. maybe that's a message. Now, if you're the grandmom and you go tell this kid he can't play sports, you're going to be persona non grata.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: you need to go. You need to go through mama or better, daddy. Uh, because this kid ain't going to listen to you. You know that.
0: Yeah, that's true. He's already talking about the football season yeah. and everything like that. I'm yeah, at the so same place. I have really hung up on it. I
1: have a grandson who plays football down in Mobile, uh, and he's my size, which means he's a dwarf. And uh, and he goes out there, and I think he spends the entire game dodging bullets because everybody wants to kill him because he's so small and they can take him down. Fortunately, he's fast and he's good, <laughs> but uh, and he's gifted and talented and, and all those other things that grandkids are as well. So, Lisa, there's your answer, and we appreciate it. Let's go to Louisiana. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Let's go to Louisiana and Terry. Hey, Terry. Terry, you there? Yes,
4: sir.
0: Glad to have
1: anybody from Louisiana.
4: Uh, actually, I'm from Texas, but I listen to your program every day. My question is, in two weeks, my wife is having a double knee replacement, and I was just wondering if you had any tips for me to help her with her rehab.
1: Hey, that's a great uh, great question.
3: Um, it, double knee replacement is, is difficult um, just because you're off both your knees for, for a period of time. Some people want to do them one at a time. I guess if if I was having it done, I needed both of them. I would probably choose to have them both done at the same time too, just so you're kind of over that rehab and when one uh, in one shot. Uh, again, it comes down to how mobile she is uh, going into the surgery. A lot of times, when people are going to have uh, surgeries on a major joint, we'll send them through PT to kind of strengthen up the muscles and secondary stabilizers. And it just makes the recovery from surgery a lot better um another big thing when you're having uh surgery especially in your lower extremity is going to make you immobile is the risk for getting a dvt so yes that's something you definitely want to talk vein to about. thrombosis thrombophobitis right um you know a dvt is one of those things that especially older people will get uh when they're immobilized especially after orthopedic uh procedures on their lower extremities we see that a lot in the er and the risk of that is that the clot can break off and go up to your lung, and uh, a fair number of people die when that happens. Okay, so let me
1: let me see, tell, as a rheumatologist, let me just tell you a couple other things. <clears throat> we see a lot of falls in people who have had joint replacements, especially double joint replacements. Your biggest job, you're going to be worn out by the time this is over, taking her back and forth to PT and all that stuff. But your biggest job is going to be to keeping her from falling at home. She's going to have trouble getting on or off the toilet. You need to get with a physical therapist before her surgery and talk with them about what you need to do with the the toilets, uh, portable toilets, toilet seats, uh, how you need to clear uh, pathways where she's not going to trip. And more importantly for you as to how you're going to help her get in and out of bed and do transfers because – the chances are very good that unless you're trained in this, you're going to throw your back or some other body part out and you're not going to be able to help her at all. So, you need to get that orthopedist to refer you and her to the physical therapist pre op to get that kind of instruction. You can kill yourself taking care of somebody like this if you don't know what you're doing. Terry, that's more than you wanted. Well,
4: my, actually. <laughs> um, I thought she might have some mental health tips there because my wife is real independent.
1: No, she won't be independent when her knees start hurting like crazy after uh, after that. <laughs> She's going to need your help doing uh, extension and flexion uh, at home and all kinds of stuff. You're going to be so busy, you're not going to have time to watch CNN. So uh, there you go, and we'll put you on our prayer list. Thanks for your call. Even if you're from all Texas, right, thank you anyway. <laughs> We've got time for a couple more callers. We're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We've got a little less than ten minutes and we'll take your call if you give us one. Uh and our lines are open. Let's go to David on the road. Hey David. David, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. What's happening? Well, I was driving down the road, and I
4: caught just the end of your uh, part of conversation about hiccups. Yep. And it, it struck me that I have been successful over the many years that I've had them, just very occasionally. I take as big a deep a breath as I can draw in, and I hold it for just as long as I can. Uh, and, it, and sometimes I have to do it twice. Mm-hmm. But that stops them, and I don't know why. I mean, it depends how long you can hold your breath, I guess. But and I never timed myself. But it occurred to me uh, that it would do to time yourself. And everybody can hold their breath for a minute, even mm. though they don't think they can. <clears throat> and for some reason, that either that oxygen deprivation or increased oxygen—I don't know what it does—but
1: it stops it. Okay, that's a that's a good we, as many home remedies as possible. Is that yeah. one of your? Was that one of yours too? Or?
3: Yeah, yeah, and it may be with when you're taking a deep breath and holding it, you're just stretching the diaphragm out, um, and it's stopping that. But I think the the caller that we had earlier was past all of those kind of home remedy situations yeah. where he's seen specialists and they still haven't been able to figure it out. Yeah,
1: I found uh, burping stops my hiccups, but that's rude, and I can't talk about <laughs> it on television. Uh, radio or television. Let's go to uh let's go to Jackson and Dwayne. Hey, ja- hey, uh, Dwayne, what's happening?
5: Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I- I'm having problems. Now, this has been going on for several months with my eyes. It started out. I thought it was originally. I thought it was like the pink eye, and the eye condition worsened and red, and where it's really sensitive to light. Uh, And I went to my general physician. He sent me to a specialist. They've given me these eye drops um, that are a uh, steroid. steroid. Mm -hmm. I've been taking those now for about several months. Um, And actually, because of the strength of the steroid, it's really not recommended, as I understand from my reading, that you take them for a long period of time Mm -hmm. as an eye drop. And it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. I've done full blood work. I've done chest x-rays. I've done the breathing uh, uh, treatment, I guess the breathing test at uh, the hospital to see if there's maybe some type of uh, autoimmune Mm -hmm. disease that may be causing it, but man, I am at my
1: wit's end. Okay, so I'll I'll kick this one off. You have iritis or a similar red eye condition of your eye, and the problem is is that if you stop using those steroid drops without medical supervision, you could lose the sight in that eye. And uh, what they're looking for is an underlying... Connective tissue disease like rheumatoid arthritis or one of the seronegative spondyloarthritis or sarcoidosis, which are associated with this problem, you are not communicating well with your doctor. I really want to say your doctor is not communicating well with you. And once you go past a certain time with those eye drops, then there are oral medicines that they put you on to spare you, steroid. Um, complications so I I strongly suggest you do one of two things or both a go back to your doctor and get a full explanation of what his his or her long-term treatment plan is and second get a second opinion and that would be my answer and we need to go to another call and thank you for going back and forward thank you out so much get yourself a second opinion if that's what you need okay okay all right let's go to mobile and gene hey gene yes sir what's happening
7: I talked to you last week about psoratic uh, arthritis, and uh, you had give me some information.
1: Yeah.
7: What I need to find out is, can I email you and get this information? You told me some prescriptions you might be able to use and some tests that they might be able to run for that. To be sure that's what I've got. And uh, I, I yeah.
1: If you email us at southernremedympbonline.org, I will send you a patient information sheet not mm-hmm. a prescription, that's illegal, uh, right. and uh, give you some information on psori- psoriatic arthritis. Says Southern right. Rimin- I, Once
7: again, I want to apologize for telling you had every kind of disease known to me. Uh, you
1: keep <laughs> telling me that because it's true. Let's go to...
7: Well, you'd be a good study.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm a hermaphrodite or something since I, I have both I male and female. Not. I don't know either. Uh, let's go to uh, to Sear in Colin Collierville, Tennessee. Hey, Sear. Oh,
4: hey, how are you? We're uh, good. What's happening? Listen, I got, just got a comment on that hiccup.
1: I knew that would get everybody all roused up.
4: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
7: well, the the uh, reason that holding your breath works is because uh, carbon dioxide uh, relaxes the
4: glottis. Huh. And that's why your hiccup stop.
1: Well, okay. what about that? Huh. <laughs> What about carbon monoxide? What would that do to you? (laughs) That would stop them, too, wouldn't it? That wouldn't be the one you want to use. All right. Well, thanks for the physics. We appreciate it, and thank you for your call. Well, we're just about out of time on Southern Remedy. I want to close out by giving our special guest a couple of uh, minutes to finish his concussion lecture, since uh, we, we didn't get anybody asking how you diagnose it and what it is. So the the whole approach to concussions has changed recently, right? And you made a couple of really important points during our conversation is that, you know, just because you have a little one doesn't mean that you hadn't bad, something bad happened to you. And it's hard to estimate the complications. So what is a concussion? How do you know if somebody, you know, you love has one and what are you really supposed to do about it?
3: Well, the diagnosis of a concussion can sometimes be difficult, um, Basically, it's some type of an impact to the body. It doesn't have to be to the head. So you could take an impact to the chest or the back, and it, it kind of jostles your brain in such a way that it, it, it causes a concussion. It's a bunch of jello sitting up in a an in egg shell.
1: It's sort of like an egg yolk sitting it, in there. Exactly. Yeah.
3: And, and we kind of differentiate a traumatic brain injury from concussion. Um, it's real similar to the mild traumatic brain injuries, though, that we see after a car accident and things, but they still make the the distinction between a sports concussion. And essentially, the diagnosis of it is you have neurological impairment without any identifiable brain abnormality on the traditional imaging studies that we do, like a CT scan or an MRI. There's some functional MRIs, things like that, that can show some so changes. So what is a
1: neurological change that would make you—so you, you get you have a negative MRI or CT— and you have a neurological change. What right. what
3: what are those? The the most common things that we see are headaches and dizziness of some kind. And then people describe dizziness differently. But but a lot of people will have, feel unsteady. So you underneath. don't have to black out to have a concussion. No, the majority of them do not have loss of consciousness. The majority of them are you know they get hit and sometimes they eat, will stagger back to the the uh, the huddle. And sometimes you see them kind of going the wrong direction after they get hit, and then you know something's going on then. If you want more information about concussions,
1: send us an email, and we'll send you a patient information sheet at southernremedymbbonline.org. Hey, it's been great to have uh, such a talented guest with us. Dr. Brian. thank you for being with us, and I hope you'll come back again. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by your support. By the way, with all the cuts, we need it. Catch the replay of today's show this Sunday at 5 p.m. and join us Wednesday at 11 for the original Southern Remedy. Stay tuned for NPR's Southern Remedy. And don't forget, at 7.30 tonight, Marshall Ramsey is doing his conversation show, and you want to hear that. Bye. Mm-hmm.